Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Brandon Taylor. Brandon Taylor is the author of the novel Real Life, which was a New York Times editor's choice and shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize, the 2020 National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize, and the 2021 Young Lions Fiction Award. His short story collection, Filthy Animals, just published this week, July 2021. He holds graduate degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where he was an Iowa Arts Fellow. He is also the author of the Substack newsletter, Sweater Weather. We have been honored to publish two of his stories at the Suwannee Review, Mass in the most recent issue, which is from Filthy Animals, as well as a story that I expect to see in his next collection because he's so prolific, Honorarium. He is also one of our editors at large, and we are even more greatly honored by that. Brandon Taylor, it's a pleasure to have you on this morning review podcast. Oh, it's an honor to be here. I follow you on Twitter. I'm one of the Brandon minions, millions. And I have a question that I think it would almost be like, it's a Rosetta Stone question. It's like, how do you bottle word of mouth in publishing? And so here it goes. How do you think you establish a certain kind of authority on Twitter? The authority that is to be able to talk about a wide range of subjects without backlash. Now, that's not to say, of course, maybe you've run into backlash on Twitter, but your presence on Twitter is extraordinarily winning, but also fearless about engagement. You're fearless about sharing your extremely Catholic tastes in literature at a time when I think in some ways Catholic tastes are frowned upon. Have you ever given any thought to that? Early in my writing life, my sort of public writing life, I gave a lot of thought to how I was going to present myself online because it it seemed like um, I was already spending so much time on social media and it seemed like if I was going to write for small online publications, which is really the thing I sort of set out for myself early on, that I needed to get really good at sharing work online and, and connecting with people digitally in, in that way. And so I did give a lot of thought to like, how does a person operate in these digital spaces in a way that isn't like cheesy and isn't just, you know, like back in the early days of book Twitter, it was essentially just people sharing Amazon links to their Kindle, <laughs> their Kindle sales for their books. And I never wanted it to be like that. And so what I came up with was that I was just going to talk about things that I was really interested in and I was going to talk about them in ways that were like authentic and straightforward and conversational. And I wasn't going to try to be, you know, like a quote unquote capital S serious writer. And 
when I had something to share, then I would share it. And that way, the sharing of my work and the quote unquote promotion of my work was just a natural part and parcel with all the other stuff that I was doing on Twitter. And so, yeah, I think that when it comes to cultivating a brand or just cultivating a community, because that's really how I think of it, like on Twitter, it's more about, I think that it should be like 90% you talking about things that aren't necessarily self-promotion and then 10% (laughs) self-promotion. And that way people don't even notice that you're self-promoting. Then they're like, oh, this person I root for online has a new thing out. I'm going to go support them. But then the other 90% of the time when they're following your feed, you're talking about things that are interesting to you and maybe are interesting to them. And so you're giving them something all the time. And it isn't always just like, you know, the the five words my publicist told me to tweet or whatever. And so I think the real key to building engagement on Twitter is not being so mercenary about it and not and just like not thinking too hard about your like how you're going to min max it. And as far as like avoiding backlash, I tend to think I think people are really hungry for nuance and I think people are really hungry for the spicy take and for the things that, you know, people are, you know, I think people are hungry for that kind of discourse. And I think one of the things that people seem to really like about my Twitter presence is that I'm not afraid to be really honest. If I don't like something, I won't hesitate to say that I don't like it. And the flip side of that is that people also know that when I really like something, I'm not afraid to say, oh, I like this, or here are my thoughts about this. I'm trying not to think too hard about how people will respond to it. And I'm just trying to be authentic. I think that what's lovely from a literary Twitter side, although I don't even in sort of like a dungeon master's subcontinental way, like even balkanize it that much. Right. I mean, I'm just like, you know, but anyway, my point is that you're boundlessly enthusiastic about your enthusiasms and you are willing to be straight up about things that you feel come up short. Yeah. And, and I get why people are hesitant because nobody wants to be considered a hater and nobody want, you know, like the sort of, cult of toxic positivity like everybody's always keeping their mind on when they're going to have something out and so they don't want to like poison the well or whatever but i just think it's art let people have a whole range of reactions to the art and as long as you aren't being you know a total jerk about it like if you're not tagging people in negative comments you're saying then like there's no no harm no foul i think it's really just yeah i try to always take it back to first principles like socializing and try to like keep it keep it funny keep it authentic keep it real and you know try to be honest and try to not think too hard about it i think we get into trouble when we try to min max our social (laughs) interactions well as a gen xer um i probably I probably don't think about it at all in the sense that, um, I mean, like I like to joke, you know, I still write emails like uh, snail mail epistles. But what I'm impressed with, with regard to your Twitter presence, Alex Chi is able to operate the same way. And yes, world, I'm leaving out a million other people, but is the authority to be frank because the truth is in spite of first principles and i respect the first principles in spite of first principles the propinquitousness between frankness and a pile of self-canceling incinerating dog shit is very close Mm. and so just to get you to maybe probe or parse a little more 
what do you attribute that authority to? I'm talking about something very authentic, which is it was fascinating watching you do deep dives into Lionel Trilling and to say John Cheever and to do it fearlessly, not guilelessly, but fearlessly as a black queer writer. Mm. You know, I think it comes from, well, for me, it comes from, I try to reject received notions about things, particularly things that I'm engaging in. And I try to approach it from a place of like, not even like open-mindedness, but just like, I'm going to not, I'm going to reject the received ideas. For example, like when I was reading Lionel Trilling, like, yeah, there's a received idea that no one should be reading Lionel Trilling because he's like a dead white guy and canon and et cetera, et cetera. All these really tedious conversations (laughs) about discarding writers for a whole host of reasons, some of which perhaps are legitimate. And, you know, there's a way in which I could have read trilling through that lens. But then I thought, but then if I did that, I would never read him, (laughs) you know? And so I try to just like set aside the received notion. I try to set aside the, the sort of stale discourses and I try to enter into art in as unmediated a way as possible. And I feel like that for me is where I feel like I I cultivate some of that authority is that it is just like myself. I'm just reading for myself and thinking for myself and trying to sort of discard these frameworks, which I think started out as well-intentioned frameworks to help us think about the whiteness of the canon and the pervasiveness of patriarchy, but which have solidified into um, as stale a framework as the frameworks those were critiquing in some ways. And so, yeah, I mean, for me... I just try to discard received ideas about writers and texts, and I try to approach them in a way, I'm not even thinking like, I'm going to be unique and original, but really I'm just trying to figure out what do I, Brandon Taylor, in the year 2021, think about this work? And and sometimes I write about, you know, Trilling or Carver or Cheever, and when I'm writing about those writers, I'm not even thinking like, I have something important to say. I'm really just trying to figure out what I think. And then because I'm a writer, I do most of that thinking on the page. And then I share it with people in this newsletter, Sweater Weather, and send it out into the world. And if people find it interesting, they do. And if they don't, they don't. But yeah, I try to just like decouple my own interests from whatever feedback loop exists and you know exists on social media or, or whatever. It feels like you're hitching the reader to this ride of, you know, frankly, your own development, Mm. your own development as, as a writer, what I love about it. And I said this to a friend after our car ride together, because I was bemoaning the fact that we weren't being recorded on the car ride because that was a podcast, which is that I said, he reminds me of when I was in my twenties and was determined to become a writer where I was so Catholic in my reading, so voracious, so widespread, not, you you know, going down. It's like Blake's quote about the crooked roads are roads of genius, right? Where you're going down an Ibokov wormhole or a Bellow wormhole. You're going down an Alice Monroe wormhole. You're going down a Langston Hughes wormhole. You're going down a Miles Davis wormhole, (laughs) but then making hybridized associations between all of them. Yeah, that's really what it is. I think it, that's a perfect description of what I'm trying to do. I mean, I try to, you know, whenever I'm sitting down to write, 
particularly if I'm writing about writing or writing about literature, I'm always trying to create for the reader something that I wish I'd had as a young reader, which is like someone taking me by the hand and walking me through it all and 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 being really frank and honest. Like, I don't have all the answers. I don't know anything. Like, I'm just learning just like everybody else. Um, and I'm just trying to recreate that feeling for the reader because that's how I feel. Like, like I've been this summer, I'm doing what I call my hot Freud summer where I read all of Freud's canonical works. And it has been a really exciting experience. Like before you came to pick me up at the end, I was reading Beyond the Pleasure Principle and thinking about how in in the essay Id, Ego, and Superego, he he essentially lays out what for me feels like a really interesting idea that relates to what I'm seeing in novels of contemporary female subjectivity. And I'm like, oh yeah, Freud. Freud was there. He knew. This is like an interesting way to think about these contemporary books. And, you know, I feel like most people would think like Freud, Freud and like novels of contemporary female subjectivity. Like what do those things? Right. He didn't understand women. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, oh no, there's so much in here that that resonates and fits. And so much of my work and reading life recently has been that, like reading Leslie Fiedler's Love and Death in the American Novel and thinking about their ideas in that book, particularly his conception of the American Gothic that to me dovetail incredibly well with a recent line of internet novels or thinking about the millennial novel as described, you know, Sally Rooney and Raven Leilani and how these books are considered like new, but when you really look at them, they sound exactly like naturalism and not like the sort of American naturalism, which is its own thing, but, you know, sort of classic French naturalism. And so my reading life lately has just been me reading, you know, like mid-century American critics and then being like, wow, these books from, you know, the mid-century that people discount now, to me, they feel like the real key to unlock our our cultural and critical moment. And so, yeah, my reading life is absolutely just like, read some books from 80, 30, 50 years ago, and then be like, wow, this <laughs> this really resonates with what I'm reading in contemporary literature today. Discount culture, to me, is a cheapened culture. One of the things that I also, you know, very much appreciate about what you are, I feel in my guts is an unselfconscious enterprise of discovery. At a time, I think, where, you know, sometimes I'm not going to name names, but I do sometimes hear super established writers, MFA teachers talk about feeling like their students struggle with a kind of literacy with not doing their reading. Now, of course, that's a stupid blanket statement as well. But I'll share a story that I think is apropos and important. When I was 24 and in my first MA school at, at Hollins University, and I was studying under Richard Dillard, he taught a legendary Alfred Hitchcock film class. And even though I was a child actor, and even though I was the son of an actor and a film buff, I had somehow managed never to see a Hitchcock film in my entire life. And then suddenly I, I was in a Hitchcock seminar watching really from the first silence, all silent films, all the way through to his later dark period, his entire oeuvre. And the first reaction that I had was so powerful and it was this. And it's kind of like what you're talking about with Raven Lalani and Sally Rooney, where I was like, oh, this is where 90% of the movies I see now come from. And it kind of floored me. And it in turn changed the way 
that I read and consumed art. Mm. It was extraordinarily humbling. And because we are all autodidacts here, it forced me to be systematic and that I had to develop my own system of becoming whatever writer I was going to become. Yeah, totally. That's so funny. Recently, I guess like a year ago, I saw my first Hitchcock film, Garth Greenwell. It was your first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never so seen So you and Garth were together watching those movies when he was talking about it on Twitter? Garth was, yes, Garth was giving me an education, as he often does. He often, he showed me he my- He gave me one when, he, when, we, when we interviewed him here. He's, <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just, I just set that fire burning and warm my hands. He's, but anyway. He's, Garth often gives me an education. He teaches <laughs> me so much about art. He showed me my first opera. He showed me Hitchcock. He showed, I mean, Garth shows me so many things. When we were both in Iowa City, we would go to the small theater downtown and, you know, he, he taught me about Merce Cunningham and uh, John Cage. And yeah, I feel like there's so many, I feel like half the things I know about queer culture, I know from that song, La Vie Boheme from Rent. And the other, <laughs> and the other half of things I know about queer culture come from Garth. Just like the only things that I know about American history from like the war of 1812 to the present day, I learned from that song, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> um, that song is the only reason I passed AP US history. But yeah, Garth has taught me so many things and he showed me so many great, so many great pieces of art. Tell me about what Hitchcock film or Hitchcock films did you watch with Garth and what was your take on them? Rear Window? Oh, it's one of the yeah. it's one of the great ones. It's an incredible. Oh, you know who else he showed me? He showed me Kukor. Oh, well, yeah. And I will say like that summer was such a it was such an incredible summer. And I felt like every I would leave his house at night on these humid summer nights and walk back across the bridge or he would drive me home and after I'd come home from one of those nights, I would just be sitting in my bed, like with my head on fire. Like there's just something when you real, it's like touching the mother flame. And suddenly, like when you see one of those sort of primary texts that are so important for the culture, you suddenly see everything else, like the great constellation of culture. You see all the resonances and you're like, you now understand that things that you didn't know were references were references. 100%. <laughs> and it's, it's just like, I was like, oh, that's what, that's what that means. Or like, oh, that's what they were riffing on. And yeah, it's really incredible. And I've had the same experience reading like Alfred Kazin and Leslie Fiedler and Lionel Trilling and D.H. Lawrence. And I mean, it's just all of these, I feel like I have a foundation now and I can now understand the firmament on which um, not only the American critical tradition was built, but, you know, our sort of contemporary literary culture is built on, if not these texts, then people who were referencing these texts. I don't want to beat the Hitchcock thing to death, but there's also something I think to be learned from the standpoint of just being an artist, which is a deep, deep abiding trust in your vision mm -hmm. because it is certainly clear if you do any reading on Hitchcock as a director that he was an artist through and through but he was marketed as and participated in the marketing of his own films as the master of suspense and so he was always operating within this sort of like pop cultural vehicle and in essentially popular forms, but was allowed to be extraordinarily subversive. I mean, there are enormously subversive aspects of Rear Window, for instance, that 
are built in and are so evident to us now, but which Hitchcock had a kind of deep trust that would be discovered 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's so true, of, as you say, of great art. When I read Jane Austen, for example, it feels so incredible that she wrote these books. I'm so glad you mentioned her, by the way, but keep going, please. But like, you know, like culturally, like a million years ago. <laughs> but to pick those books up now, it's like she's writing about today. It's oh like she's God. writing about yesterday and tomorrow. And there's just something that lives in great art, I think, where it's sort of, tra- it's not that it transcends, you know, its time and its particularities or whatever, but there is something just like, she had such deep abiding trust in what she was writing about. And she knew it so deeply and so well that she was able to sort of see through to the bottom of her themes, of her understanding of the human heart and the human condition. And so when we pick those books up now, it's like she's talking directly to us. And like all great artists, she is also hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But keep going. I mean, just like so funny and so heartbreaking at the same time. So funny and so heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's brilliant. She's one of my favorites, obviously. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. It's just synchronicity. You mentioned Jane Austen because I just came back from a vacation with my daughters and my eldest daughter, Margot, is for summer reading, reading Pride and Prejudice. She's a voracious reader, but she was she was expressing a little bit of struggle with getting into it. And I said, well, you know, it's funny. I listened to Pride and Prejudice on Audible with Rosamund Pike reading it and she's brilliant. And I was like, let's listen to it for a while. We don't have to listen to it because we were driving a lot. Let's let's listen to it. And I think maybe you'll pick up on it a little more. And we listened to it. And there are two things that are truly remarkable about Austin, which is A, the absolute granular attention to each character, which to me gets translated now in MFA school as loving all of your characters. But there are, of course, plenty of reprehensible characters in Austin, but she does love them in their detail. But also, the the genius to me of Austin, apart from her architecture, is the infinite branching forks of her irony. I don't know how she enters a scene being so armed, as it were, with these levels of irony. It just blows my mind. Yeah. And it's, I feel like the irony is constantly evolving, you know, like it, like with Darcy, for example, I mean, there are all these scenes in Pride and Prejudice where like Darcy is like saying something and then you're, you, you know that he's being sarcastic, 
but then like the narrator has like a different take on Darcy's sar- so there's like these like layers of irony and sarcasm sort of built in but of course like what she's doing is showing you that he's a person who's so uncomfortably socially that his only mechanism is to be sarcastic is to be sort of like hmm and of course like he and Lizzie are flirting like that whole time when they're at Netherfield when Jane gets sick like they're flirting they're flirting they're flirting he's already madly in love with her yes <laughs> he's madly in love with her and it's like watching him construct his attraction to mm-hmm. her but anyway keep going and like they're sparring and and like lizzie likes it he likes it caroline bingley hates every moment of it and like they're going at it and what is so brilliant about that is that you're able to appreciate how each of those characters has a slightly different understanding of what is happening in that room. And you only get that if you are like an absolute master of irony, because otherwise it gets so serious. It gets so plotting it, you know, but because Austin is so in control of like the field of irony, she can play all of those characters off of each other simultaneously. It's, it's brilliant. Similarly, you exhibit as far as i'm concerned the same level of control of irony and moments and filthy animals i'm going to keep orbiting back to filthy animals because there's so much i want to talk with you about but i was always struck in your portrayal when she continually reappears of sophie of how sophie's actions are always nuanced by not so much a again a kind of Rosetta Stone of tragedy or trauma that that haunts her character, but how so many of the ways in which she interacts with Lionel and Charles are nuanced by a certain need for truth she has. I was wondering if you could talk a little about that central triangle in Filthy Animals of Charles, Sophie, and Lionel, and talk about triangular love relationships in that book and how you mine them. Yeah. So uh, Filthy Animals is a story collection, but down the spine of it are these linked stories. I think there are five or so, maybe six, six, six linked stories. And they follow this trio of characters, Lionel, Charles, and Sophie. Lionel has just recently gotten out of a second stay at a mental hospital. Charles is a ballet dancer at a program in UW-Madison, and Charles is in a relationship with this other dancer, Sophie. And in the first story in the book, Potluck, Lionel goes to her friend's Potluck and meets these two dancers, and then the rest of the stories sort of orbit them as they become involved in each other's lives over three or so snowy days in Madison, Wisconsin. And that relationship, yeah, I mean, like, I wanted to write about a triangular relationship in a way that like wasn't initially when I started writing that story, I thought it was going to be Charles cheats on his girlfriend with Lionel. And then I was going to like write an affair story. But, and so I wrote the first story and then I was writing the second story, which is called flesh. And I got to the part of that story where Charles has his confession to Sophie and Sophie says, Oh, how boring. Like, I don't care. Like, did you have a good time is what I want to know. And I wrote that line, oh, who cares? And I realized like, oh, the story isn't that he cheats on his girlfriend. The story is that these two people have an open relationship and understand each other and what each other wants in a, in a really sort of like deep way. And like the tension isn't monogamy. Like that's not the thing sort of like 
above board tedious monogamy like how does it what holds a relationship together like once you take quote-unquote sexual monogamy off the board what is like really important to these characters in a relationship if it isn't just like you sleep with me and only with me what are the other ways of like being in a deep abiding intimate relationship with someone and so the stories kind of became about that but they also became about Lionel's relationship with each of them separately. That was really important to me. 100%, yes. I didn't want it to be just like, they're in a three-way. I wanted it to feel like Lionel is in a different mode when he's with each of them separately because it is different. It is like, they are different people. They aren't the same person. So Lionel's relationship to both of them should be complicated by his relationship with each of them, but it should be its own thing, especially if I'm going to be following it across six stories. Well, also, but you know, there's a really fascinating moral continuum Mm. in those interlinked parts of the story, which have counterpoints in the other stories orbiting it. If we're going to talk in terms of that structure, which is that, Lionel isn't necessarily someone who, as a newly welcomed guest into this open relationship, has the same level of openness. There is a real anxiety, I think, on Lionel's part. At one point, I think he says something like, were these two people, Charles and Sophie, moving through his life like weather? Was he just sort of another thing? which on the moral continuum, as it seems to me to be presented in Filthy Animals, the collection, is that whether or not relationships are open or sexually porous, queer, straight, whatever, the the question becomes how you actually treat someone with an authentic ethos of openness. Because some people are just predatory. They either don't understand themselves and are predatory upon each other, whether they need to get out of certain places or they see how their repression is going to turn them into animals. Or in the case of Sophie, Sophie in some ways is the champion of accepting the non-ownership and the non-binding aspect of how we interact with each other because she's had everything taken away from her, Mm. which gets construed as nothing matters to you. But that's not what she's about. It's not that she's about nothing matters to her. It's not that she's about, we're all standing on, you know, the thin ice of, you know, complete annihilation. It's that she's like, because we're standing on the thin ice of annihilation, why don't we just simply be truthful? without a kind of possessiveness. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. And I think that a lot of what drives her actions in the book, even the sort of more seemingly sinister or insidious actions that she has later in the book, I think it's driven by her desire for honesty like it and when people are dishonest i think one of the first things she says in the in the book in the first story is i just hate when people are dishonest and she like lets them both know up front like i just hate when people lie to me 
I hate when people are dishonest to me and I hate when they're dishonest to themselves. And I think that what she's always trying to do is trying to, to goad people into expressing what it is they really want. Like, don't tell me what you think I want to hear and then go around and sneak around and do what you really want. Tell me what it is that you want. Like, express it. Like, let's have a frank and honest conversation. And, you know, I feel like the other characters in the book fail to meet her there again. They absolutely fail to meet her there. They fail to meet her there. And so she gets so angry that she has no choice but to, to reveal to them in some way the falseness of their actions. And isn't it ironic to talk about the field <laughs> of irony that of all these dancer characters, in some ways, no one moves like Sophie. Mm. Sophie is the one who moves with the most electricity and grace is in, in that way, the most gifted in terms of movement in making how you move through the world, a kind of art that allows you to re-see movement. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that she is, I think that she has that thing that all great artists have, which is like this deep and abiding sense of herself and this ability to to make that how she operates in the world and to not not be putting on and not be sort of making accommodations for things that she doesn't want to accommodate. She is so endlessly and fearlessly herself. And all that she asks is that you meet her there. It's honestly like a really tough standard. Like it's, it's a tough, tough standard and it, ter- and it terrifies people. Because like it would tear society apart if we didn't have artifacts. <laughs> it would. And also, and, and what's fascinating about it, certainly in terms of the way Lionel and Charles operate is in the fabulous first story, Potluck. Potluck to me is a story, I'm going to depart from its title. To me, it's a story about breaking and entering. It's about It's about glass shattering. Charles in some way is busting through the glass of Lionel's life. And Lionel at this point is potentially brittle and as potentially fragile as glass and is, and, and is to, in some ways, Charles and Sophie transparent. That transparency, what you do with that transparency is what is some of the moral dimension, I think, of your stories. So that similarly, for instance, in a story like Filthy Animals, the title story, where you have Mitch and Nolan, where again, you have this kind of repressed love between these two boys that is getting expended in these sort of filthy, in the dark, behind the trees ways with say, for instance, Mitch and Nolan, and then gets expended through violence when Nolan lashes out at Abe, this is the more dark manifestation of the very thing Sophie is trying to argue against. It's like, if you step into the light about your desires, about who you are, about where you need to be, it's just a better place to inhabit, which is is why to me, at the end of a story like Filthy Animals, the one true thing that Milton knows is he needs to get the fuck out of Dodge and get to Idaho. That's going to possibly save his life. It kind of mirrors in some ways, some aspects of your own biography. Yeah. I mean, for many queer black boys in the South, there is this driving need to get out 
of your small town and to get away from your family because sometimes family for all of its nurturing dimensions, although that's not a thing I have experience with, you know, there are ways in which like the people who have known you the longest have a vested interest in making sure that you remain as you were and not even as you are, but like as you were when you were six years old and for a queer person, that can be a death sentence because you don't have the freedom to sort of self-define or find yourself. And so you got to get out. And so I think that in that story in filthy animals, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that story starts with him being like, I can't believe I have to like leave my friends and I can't believe my parents are sending me to Idaho. This is so awful. I hate this. But by the end of that night, he's just like, Oh yeah. If I stay here, I'm going to dead somebody or someone's going to dead me. Exactly. You know, he's, he sees it for the first time he really truly sees oh oh i see like this is what we're not kids anymore we have the bodies of men and all that sort of playful scrapping around that we used to do when we were kids we couldn't really hurt each other we were ki- we we're kids and now we have this this horrifying monstrous strength and we can bash a boy's head open because he said something we didn't like. And we're all sort of so tense because we can't say how we really feel. And so we go around taking cuts at the world because our fists, that's the only language we really have. So that was such a beautiful setup to a certain passage that I'm going to have you read a passage from the title story, Filthy Animals, if you would. He couldn't cut his fingers off even if he wanted to. Not with this knife, its edge too dull, his bones too thick. Bones. Milton smirks to himself. There is a thought. What he wants is not to maim himself, but to pry the world open, bone it, remove the ugly hardness of it all, the way one might take the spine from a deer or a fish or some other animal snared. Milton lifts the knife from his hand and stabs it into the table. When he was younger, he killed senselessly because the thrill of the act was like dipping his face into a clear, rushing stream. He didn't have to consider the lives he ended. It was as if they were merely parts of a game, tokens to trade with his friends. If there were any merciful part of his childhood, it was that, the cleanness of it, how the act didn't taint them, how the violence seemed to leave no trace at all. But he's older now, and the meat of the world is full of bones. Everybody's walking around all the time full of bones, full of jagged shards, flecks of hardness that need taking out and would, upon swallowing, prompt a person to choke. There's no mercy in the basement tonight. It's a perfect exhibit, I think, Brandon, of your range as a writer, you know, a writer who is wary of figurative language, but who just immerses himself so powerfully in the in the concrete and the natural world while also being, again, as as we were talking about, uh, aware of this kind of field of irony. Another story that stands as a counterpoint to the Charles Lionel-Sophie triangle is As Though That Were Love. When Harches, is it Harches? Yes. Harches, it's Dutch, correct? Yep. Harches goes, which means heart, goes and visits his dying friend, Simon. 
And Harches, if I'm recalling correctly, is also a boy from the South. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. His mother has just died. And the death of his mother and her rejection of Harches, ostensibly for her new stepson, but of course, because he's queer, looms over the story. But what's fascinating about the story, and that really, uh, to me, speaks to what we're talking about in terms of self-knowledge, dwelling in truth, the possibilities of communion, how we escape emotional and physical violence, is that it's a story about someone who doesn't listen to himself. It's about someone who goes somewhere in the hopes of friendship and something else happens. I was wondering if if you could talk about that story on the continuum of this Brandon Taylor morality scale that we've described, this morality continuum. (laughs) Amazing. I love the idea of a morality continuum. Yeah. So that story, which was the first story I wrote in its entirety as an MFA student at the AI Writers Workshop. Oh, wow. My second semester. It's a fab. It's one of my favorite stories. Oh, thank you. I, you know, that story... That story was such a gift because it was the first story, also the first story I wrote after finishing real life. So I finished real life in 2017, didn't write another story until January of 2018. Yeah, it was a long layoff. And, you know, that story to me is about many, many things. But in terms of my sort of moral continuum, I think I want, I mean, I wanted to write about what family history does to a person and how it complicates your ability to connect with another person. And to me, it's about human connection. And Harchis and Simon, they have a friendship. It's not the friendship Simon would want them to have because Simon would like them to have sex again, which they did, but they were sexually incompatible. But Harchis is like, but you're my friend. You matter to me. You're important to me. I want to be in your life. I'm not just like passing weather. I'm your friend And I wanted to write about like what happens in a queer friendship once sex goes away. And then, of course, the answer is that it never really goes away. Like sex is always sort of there complicating things. And I think that that story is about how you can be there for someone, even when you both have drastically different ideas about what being there for them means. And it's also about love and what love looks like and you know, I think sometimes people think that love is like hugging your kid a lot or whatever. And I think that for someone like Harchis, love looks like teaching his dogs how to be excellent hunters and killers. Because that's what love was for him, was this incredibly brutal, like harrowing upbringing that he received. And it's trying to, I think that story is trying to complicate the idea of love and trying to complicate it in ways that that speak to some of the more, I guess, like darker impulses that are present in just like the very idea of love and intimacy and not being afraid of that. I think sometimes we're afraid of the darker side of love or we think that it's bad or insidious, but sometimes that is just what you know of love. You're an enormous talent, Brandon, and it's just so wonderful to have you here. Oh, it was a thrill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www 
www.thesawanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.